Hey, I'm Tremika, and this season of Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin has been so great. We've gotten unbelievable responses and positive feedback from all of you. And with that being said, I just want to say thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you for supporting Deep Dives. And for doing that, I do actually have a treat for you. The episode that you're about to hear was actually not even supposed to launch until January, but we just couldn't keep you waiting that long. So we decided to release it as bonus content. Recently, we spoke to Dr. Merle Irving. He's the president of Hennepin Technical College. And we invited him to actually be live in front of a virtual audience that we were going to launch in season two. Well, the conversation was so great, we just couldn't keep waiting. So we had to actually release it early. So here's a little bit of an inside scoop. When season two launches in January, we'll have even more of these live virtual sessions on topics that our very own subscribers have told us that they wanted to hear. So if you want an invitation to the next live event, make sure that you're subscribed because it's the only way to get invited and you really don't want to miss out. So if you enjoyed this bonus content, take a minute and listen to some of our episodes and learn more about Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin by going to www.deepdivestv.com. Now let's dive in with Dr. Irving. We are going to get started, but I want to ask Dr. Irvin, do you mind if I call you Merle? Oh, that's the brand. You got to call me Merle. <laughs> I figured you'd say that, but I just wanted to kind of ask first. So before we get too deep into this discussion, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about like your path to presidency. Well, you know, that's like a three-part split question. You know, usually people start off with their resume and what job they held a long time ago, but For me, I really start off with the realistic piece. The realistic piece is that I was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. I was first generation of college. You know, neither one of my parents went to college. However, my mom, being a teenage mother, she went to all Catholic school. And if she was going to keep this child, which she did, she couldn't stay there. So she had to leave, switch schools. She married my father, had me. She went to work. But she had a full ride to go to college, but not just college. When people say, I have a doctorate degree, and they always ask, are you a real doctor? Meaning that, are you a physician? Well, my mother had a full scholarship really to go on to medical school. And, you know, for me and my commitment to education, because I knew that that was going to be the pathway to change, was to be exactly what I needed to be today. I spent most of my time when my mom worked 12-hour shifts with my grandmother and my grandparents. My grandmother was deaf and mute. That's the first language for my mom and and all her brothers and sisters. And so the pathway to change for us was knowing that we could have some type of opportunity with education. In West Virginia, where I grew up, which is one of the least diverse states in the country, 95% white, a little over 3% black, and the rest is other. Most of the people who are coming out of high school, or if they were coming out of high school, they either went to work or they went to the military. We didn't have community colleges then. And so the phenomenon of community college, we actually have, I don't know if most people remember the Job Corps. Do you remember the Job Corps? So there was the Job Corps, or you went on to a university. People always ask me about like, you know, did you always think you want to be a president? And and I always say this to people. I just think it's interesting. I'm like, anybody that says they always do they want to be a president, you need to get their autograph. Because there's very few people in the United States that was thinking about being some type of college president, particularly when you were growing up. No, I wanted to be an actor. I had full scholarships on the Carnegie Mellon and my Wait, mom said, I didn't know, I never knew this. You wanted to be an actor? 
And I, you did not want to be an actor? No. Yeah, I wanted to be an actor. And, um, yeah, I went to um, nationals, dramatic interpretation, poetry interpretation. Gosh, I, I mean, I was so into all of that. And my mom told me, she says, baby, you have a talent. That ain't going to be what's going to pay you. So you need to get a degree in something that's going to pay you. And the other piece, which I thought was interesting was, is that when I was going and pursuing other colleges, my mom was saying, she's like, you need to go to West Virginia University. That's a good school. And it is a good school. Let's not, I mean, it's not as if it's not a good school. And I love where I went. I wouldn't change anything about that. However, at the time of what I could have been considering, my mom didn't go to college. So her giving me advice on which ones would be the best is a little bit different than getting that type of advice from somebody who had parents who went to college. And that's really the point of the story. So when people always ask me too, well, how did you start off in education? Well, I worked at my university, at West Virginia University, and um, had a lot of great opportunities. And I'm very grateful and I'm thankful to West Virginia University for allowing me to even work in student affairs. I worked as an academic advisor and it also paid for my master's degree. People always ask me to go, well, why did you select there? And I always think about and reflect on my life that people ask you questions based off of how life has afforded them privileges. Privileges that you weren't afforded. I didn't select there because it was just, I'm going through the top of my list. I selected there because I was still going to get an affordable, good education. And it was going to be for free. And by the way, I was actually going to get paid and be able to pay my rent. Those are options that just weren't slated to me at the time. I did my undergrad in political science and history. And it's interesting too, because I added history because I had a white professor. Her name was Bridget Steele. And she said to me, all the truth and perceptions about talking about Black folks. And I was thinking to myself, what does this white person know about Black people? But lo and behold, she knew a lot more than I ever could know. It's it's funny that you say that because when I went, I graduated, my undergrad is from a historically Black college, Bethune-Cookman University. And my African-American history teacher was a white guy. And I remember thinking, who let this guy in here to be teaching me about Black people. I learned more from this man than I have ever learned in my life about things that I'd never learned in Tennessee. So I get it. Right, right. So, you know, I grew up in my neighborhood. The only white person that was living close to my neighborhood was my, uh, who eventually became my stepfather. So my mom dated at the time. She married him when I was 19 and I was already gone off to college. But I grew up in neighborhoods which were predominantly black. And, and it's so interesting when we look back, I think about how integration became black people's responsibility. So much so that the my schools, which were more predominantly, people say minority or people of color, my high school, we had to consolidate with the predominantly white high school, which was in South Charleston, which means that you caught the bus at seven o'clock in the morning. But part of the story that I've kind of jumped past is I've talked a lot about my mom, but what I didn't talk about was in that trajectory was that, you know, my father, who, my parents got divorced much earlier on, but my father really struggled with a lot of senses of life, which had to deal with drugs, not only being with being a father, but also understanding what that meant to be a supportive father. Even when I was in college, because of my father dealing with his challenges with drugs, he would take money, he had taken money out of my bank accounts. The trust wasn't there. And so when I, when I talk about parts of this story is because navigating to be who we are just because we're presidents and just because we share some same space, we are not all the same. Well, you say that we're not, you're not all the same and you're absolutely right. And I know you and I always talk about this because whenever I talk about you to other people, I just say, you know, you don't know, Merle. He was president when he was 38. You always say, stop saying that to me good because I was, 
approved by the board when I was 39. But first of all, right. you started the process when you were 38. And honestly, the path to presidency ages you about 10 years because it's so stressful. So right. I guess my question for you, because that's very young, 38 or 39, it's very young. So a lot of people ask me, right? So as a 42-year-old woman that has owned this business for the past 10 years, they always say, how did you get this job? How did you do that? So how do you answer? How do you have the experience to have this job? So the funny thing is experience comes with experience. It's not years. So as you as you being a CEO and you oversee a variety of other people, you can see people who are 70 years old and have the maturity of a 15-year-old. You can also see people who do the same job for 25 years and are happy with it and have never stretched themselves and never stretched themselves in goals to do what they needed to do. The other thing is what people forget about is what do you have to navigate to get to where you are. And that's a big difference of what you're talking about coming from a state that's 95% white and you have to navigate what that is to be successful. Well, let's flip that for everybody. Let's flip it and say that that's not your group. That's not who you are as an affiliate. And you have to navigate that. Well, there is a lot of differences that comes with that stick to And that's why even coming out of um, my master's degree program, when there wasn't what I thought that would be compensation well for me. I went to Los Angeles. That's where my great uncle had been trying to get me to go for years. I used to be scared to go out to LA because you see those things like the watch rides and all these crazy things that are going on. But that's where I got my opportunity. And when I went there, I started out working underneath a lot of initiatives under the Clinton administration, having to deal with welfare to work, underserved populations, and getting those individuals into some pathway back into education and employment. So I did a lot of work with Santa Monica College, Mount Sac. There's a variety of other colleges within the area. We did, I did healthcare career ladder projects and created those. And all the other systemic pieces that would get them forward. And we were rated on the retention of those individuals. But when that went away and we had a new president, President Bush came in, the, the money's kind of zopped up for that. And um, I found myself pivoting. And I would tell people this. Here's the other thing, which is interesting, is I'm probably the only president you're going to meet was an executive director of an LGBTQ center. Very few of us, you know, came through some pathway. And, and, I, and I did that because I had individuals in my doctoral program that said, hey, you know what, Merle, you might be able to help lead us in a way with a whole other subset, which is a subset of me too, for success. We're about to get into racial, the racial and social injustice conversation that I promised everyone. But I wanted to kind of set the table so that they could understand holistically who you are as a human. And one of the things, when we first met about two years ago, a gentleman from Broward College introduced us. And I'll never forget. I will always be grateful for Brian making that connection with the two of us. And one of the things that um, I really always admired about you is your commitment, you know, with how you leverage not just your role on the AACC board, but you're just national recognition to literally turn and pull other presidents of color. I mean, you find talent and you do what it takes to help them go along the path to get placed into presidencies through mentoring and coaching. Talk a little bit about that because then I want to start having the real conversation, but I need people to know that this is not just something you've done to make yourself great at 39. You literally are making as many people great as you can. Right. And I think that one of the biggest things, so in 2014, I sat down with a couple presidents at the AACC National Convention, had a lunch, and one of them was Annette Parker and a couple other ones. And they told me about the Lake and Thomas Lakin Institute. Yep. And that was in April. I was like, you know, I want to go learn more about 
being a better leader as a Black leader, right? Well, the Thomas Lincoln Institute helps prepare Blacks that are taught by other Black presidents and chancellors to become a president or chancellor. And so in October, when I went, and I was the only person that stood up as a participant, and everybody else introduced well, how they want to be a president, why they're already in this application process. And I said, well, I guess when all you guys become presidents, I'll say I knew you first. And it wasn't because I wasn't confident. It was because I just hadn't thought of myself in that way. And I just really went to learn. But what happened was is that I was the one that became the first president out of that class. And what I learned was is that a lot of people will tell you a lot of things, but really signing up to be that mentor, that person that you need, I've never had that. I've never had someone really mentor and support me in the way I wanted to be supported. And so when I became a president, that was the first thing that I wanted to hone in on was supporting other people, particularly other Black people, to have them become presidents. And over the last five years, I've been able to successfully mentor 10 people to be in presidencies. And when I say that, that's not like they just became the president. They have really, we've become family. We talk all the time. I mean, I can throw some names out there. People, you know, curious, but, you know, I'm just really close to some of the people, me, Daria Willis. I mean, we talk all the time. She just texted me before we, you know, do this. It becomes family. And you know what, too? When they get into these roles, they help you. They help you reflect. And they help connect with other Black leaders. I think back on, I was so grateful to have, when I got here to Minnesota, one of my other mentees who became a president in New York. She was the very first one who asked me to, to be their mentor. And her name was Arinthia Montague. And I didn't even really know Arinthia, uh, but I knew her through work here. I mean, so she asked a colleague of mine, you know what, can you get a lunch with him? And the funny thing is we both learned that we love chicken wings. And so every time we get together, we have our chicken wings. Not the chicken wings. And yes, the buffalo chicken wings, and we're going to try them on every menu. And, and you, you, I mean, from an ethnic standpoint, that connectivity, right? Yeah. When she asked me to be her mentor, I said, why me? And she was like, because you're the one that I want to be it. And the fact that people can see something in you that sometimes you don't really see in yourself has really been a history of me as a professional. And I've thought to take that on for other people, particularly other Blacks and other minorities and other people who need that type of support. There's a lot of times you see things in other people. and Most people spend more time telling you everything you're not than everything that you can be. And I think that's what's been helpful for me is that it, it fills me up to be able to do that for other professionals who are looking to be present. And you say something that rings really true, that you have a really good ability of seeing something. I wrote it down. That's what I'm looking at. Seeing something in a person that they may not see. I mean, quite honestly, I, again, I, I know you very well. Not only do you see that, you have no problem in telling those things, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent to those people that you care about. And so we're going to transition for a second from that unbelievable skill for mentoring and coaching to, to now you've shifted as president to Hennepin Technical College. First black male, correct? First black male, yes. Right. But not the first person of color. Right, right. But you go into Hennepin Technical College, and here we are, a black male growing up in West Virginia, you have lived the life of a person who has been surrounded about a whole bunch of people that don't look like him, but you are all the way who you are, and that is a black man and as a member of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Tell me about what that means as you apply to this brand new, you are in a brand new college in a brand new space, a brand new environment in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, let's talk about the journey because when I interviewed for the job, I was not reluctant to state that about my husband, how it was important for my husband to have a match here in the state of Minnesota. And what I really appreciate about our state system is that they flew up both me and my husband so that I would have a dinner with the state chancellor. And when I was confirmed to the college on both campuses, I had two people with me. One on my left-hand side was my mother who stood beside me as we was announced. And the person on the right-hand side of me was my husband. And I always tell people, if you're going to be a president, people are curious about your personal life, but they're more curious about who you are, how you make decisions. Can I trust you? Do I believe in you? And it's tough. It's tough to peel back that onion on people really believing you, trusting your decisions. And maybe they're not always the right ones. But at the end of the day, were you authentically you? That's one thing that people can say about me. Coming into our college, I realized that we say we're big. We want to be big about diversity, equity, and inclusion, correct? However, there was instances where I had in my first semester walking in, there were faculty at one of the campuses were throwing darts in President Obama's face. I got comments on after my first day of full workshop day, we normally do in November, just all around equity and inclusion. Some direct comments that said, I'm sick of your liberal agenda. I am sick of you like making direct, Like directly sent to me? No, they email either they were email or then they were in a where I received, you know, how you do a survey and you get the comment sections. Yeah. Well, yep. you know I'm gonna read them. Um, and, and reading a list of certain things of you know, people saying, like, I'm sick of you making me feel guilty for being white. And I had to reflect on that. And the first thing I thought was, okay, we've got some more work to do around here. I, you know, I had challenges with, uh, there was one faculty member who purposely would park in my parking spot and then would talk to students about me and about how some of the instances of referring and talking about Black people. That person got addressed, by the way. You know, that person got addressed, by the way. But we've made a serious commitment at our college to make equity inclusion a pillar. And, you know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday on one of our, our statewide task force. People fail to realize, and that's why I get, I get concerned about using this word of people of color. Mm-hmm. When you're Black and you are descendants of slaves, that term Black becomes heritage because your own ancestry stops with who owns you. You don't know your formal language. You don't know which nation. You don't know what kingdom you came from. You know none of that. Now, now we have the most Somalians in the Western Hemisphere, and they will stop you in a minute. Yes, they may look black, but they have their heritage. They are Somalian, and I love that. You know, just like if some of them, somebody's from Jamaica, they end up, they'll stop you. I, I, I may look black, but my heritage is what. And people fail to realize when we get into this conversation about what our heritage is why we connect and why we may be offended by so many things that people don't understand. It's not just about the skin color. It's about the composition of ourselves. How do we connect to that? And how does that affect our success? And that has been something that I wanted to ring true for the college. So how did you tackle, you know, people throwing darts at President Obama's face, whether, mm-hmm. whether they voted for or against him? It's just inappropriate, period. Right, right. But how because, did you handle that? Because it's not inclusive. You know? Right. The first thing is that, well, we, for that instance, we had to have an investigation and, and look into, I hate to say it, but I had to isolate some of them in, into one-offs. And I never, what I didn't do is tell my own story. That's not the, the biggest one I should really talk about was when I first walked in the door, we were doing our college graduation at a church. 
That was one of the first things, literally. So I had to make a decision by that September. I started July 1. As soon as I walked in, I go, why are we doing graduation at a church? We have a high Muslim population. And on top of that, outside of Muslim, LGBTQ, I mean, there's a lot of people that when I pulled up the doctrine for that church, it, they, were, they were against people who were gay. I said, how am I going to speak at a church? I said, you know what? I'm going to pull this. We're not going to do graduation there. So everybody said, oh, there's like, you're like Dr. Irving, you can't do that. I said, why not? They were like, because we won't have a place to have graduation. I was like, well, well, we'll have it on campus. And I was like, are you crazy? There's like, it'll snow in Minnesota. I said, well, it'll be in May. I was like, I'm going to take a risk. I was like, we're not having graduation at that church. I put together a committee, a team. I said, well, look up tents. Look up how much of it costs to put up a stand outside. And let me tell you what, I took a risk. We had two graduations outside. It was 75 degrees sunny. We do not have graduation at church ever since I've been there. And from that point forward, we contract with the Minneapolis Convention Center downtown, and it's very inclusive and everybody's included. But those type of principles and showing people what you're all about and taking those risks, that's probably the biggest one that I took in the beginning to let you know, like, I'm not backing down on this. And this is important. So speaking of not backing down, we're about to jump into it. So the murder of George Floyd happened right there, literally in your backyard. So how does that make you feel? And how did you navigate those? I remember being on the phone with you about, you know, we just talked through our feelings through this whole thing, right? How did you handle that as the president of a college right there where it happened? But the first thing is, is that looking back on it, I first thought when I was looking at it, it's like, we don't allow our children to watch rated R films. But we sat here and watched everybody across the globe, somebody begging to breathe and be brutally murdered. And then we still have to justify whether he's murdered or not. Well, can you say death? Can you say murder? What did you see? Because I will tell you what I saw was someone begging to breathe and being murdered. And I reflected on the college campus. I reflected on our students that literally one of our students, she's the vice president of our student senate, and she lives on that block. And to this day, there's a disturbance for her to be get around because no transportation is going going through there in certain ways. And, and I even drove to look at the actual pieces of this and what's been written on buildings, which says like, please don't burn down my building because children live here. And it was very hurtful to see some of these things. But what I heard was from people was, why can't they protest peacefully? And you know what I tell them is, is that, you know, we tried that in the 60s. And you know what happened? We got spit on. We got beat. We had uh, fire hoses that peeled our skin off. We had Bloody Sunday in Selma. Everybody forgot about what happened when it was, you know, what happened was is that everybody who was peaceful became victims just because they wanted to be heard. And what we fail to realize is this is innate to America. What do you think the Boston Tea Party was? Is when we thought that we were not getting the rights that we needed from England and we took to the streets with guns, right? It is part of American history. It is part of what happens when we keep people behind. And then so when we look at the campus, what's happening when we're keeping people behind there? And what we looked at was our structure, our policies, our procedures. And what we found out was from fall to fall, we're losing over 50% of our students. The number one population are black men over the age of 26. The other thing is, second population we're losing, they're people of color, people who identify are two or more races. When we looked at financial holds, the common theme, who is the biggest group on financial holds? Black men, number one for financial holds. I mean, this is disturbing. 
when I brought it back to our college to talk to all of our constituents, including our faculty, it really became a disturbing awareness because people are like, whoa, like this doesn't look intentional. Or here's the other one, student complaints. Over 90% of our student complaints are filed against Black men. Over 90%. Oh my gosh. So what are we doing? And this is where we use the, people don't understand the term systemic. Systemic means it has become your norm. That's what systemic means. Yeah, yeah. And I looked at it and I looked at our structures and what's happening at our college is that, oh my God, this is systemic within our institution. And we are over 46% students of color. 26% of them are black, you know, and that's a big deal. So the change that I was seeing where you talk about this unrest, I felt the unrest even on our campus. And then the other disturbing thing is, is when you try to have these conversations, most of my white professional friends kind of got quiet around it. It's like, it's like you get the deer and the hit like kind of thing. Right, um, right. The ones that want to do something that were passionate, they say, what can I do? And I always say back to them, have you written your senator? Have you written your governor? Have you said not here? Have you said I'm sick of this? Have you said that I don't want to see this happen in my community again? Because if you haven't, you are complicit. You are saying this is okay. Because there's action that needs to be taken. And all of us, including Black folks, when I talked to a lot of Black folks, what I heard was like, but what made George Floyd so special? I mean, why is everybody so upset about this happening to him? I mean, they've been killing us. And I put this in the article, it just came out yesterday for American Association of Community Colleges. But the truth of the matter is, it's disturbing. It's disturbing that we have socially accepted this type of behavior. And I don't know if it's really just police brutality, because I don't think it's just police brutality. I think this is racism at its finest, at its best. And we haven't put our hands around it, but we all exist in the same box. And on top of it, has a title called Racism as a Construct. Yep. So, you know. Let me ask you a question. How have you handled all of these feelings as it pertains to your executive team? How are you handling this, right? So we had the murder. What was the first thing that you did with your executive team? How did you have this conversation? And you know, Tamika, anybody that knows me, they know that I'm um, honest, sometimes too brutally honest. But the way I came back and had the conversations with them was, well, what are we going to do to educate ourselves? And the first thing we started doing was reading White Fragility, because I think there had to be a reflection. And even in, after the first couple of chapters, I honestly asked the question of, why do you guys buy your, and I, I said my our, our, um, associate vice president of equity inclusion could not participate. But I asked the rest of them, I said, why, why do you guys buy your homes in white communities? And why is that? And then even with black people, and why do we do it? Because we because why? There's property value. There's you know, there's all these certain things, but there's this white standard, and yep. and that we have all fed into. Whether the best schools are all white, the communities are all white, your insurance prices are going to be you know cheaper. All the way back to if you look at the housing rights and looking going back to '68 and between '65 and '68, redlining and how that is destroyed with you know black communities. I mean, there's all these things that we have socially accepted that affects us as a mental and affects our students and their mobility. It's concerning. Well, it's interesting you say that. So you have, so I, I know the construct of your of your team, and you asked, you said you had your equity inclusion person not be there. So that right. means yourself and one other person of color, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. So you have the, so this conversation of a whole bunch of white people and just you two. Right. And, um, and how are how when you had these people read this book, mm-hmm. 
because I'm very familiar with this book. So how, how, how do they, because I'm sure that they were like, oh my gosh, this is so bad and I'm so sorry that this is happening. So they did every single thing that they weren't supposed to do probably up until they read the book. So how did this awkward silence conversation take place? Because I know you, you probably addressed it head on. So what were some of the things? Because I mean, let's be real. A lot of these, a lot of our presidents that are listening on this podcast, they are of color. And they have the same situation where everybody they see around them, other than maybe one or two executive members on their cabinet, they don't look like them. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a good thing. That's just the reality of the world that we live in today. So having these transparent and real conversations aren't always easy. It's, um, it's very interesting. I have a conversation, um, Dr. Lee Goodson out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you are the two people that are the most transparent with their executive cabinet. And if anybody knows Lee Goodson, she's a very petite Caucasian woman. And she's like, listen, I am not Black, but I understand we are not doing right by Black people sometimes. And we owe this to Y. We owe this to Z. And you're that way too. And I just, how does your team take that? Right. Well, when we had the, the first interaction and I started asking those questions, a couple of them started crying because the question was, and the other piece to it is, is why is it Black people's responsibility to integrate? You know, after Brown versus Board of Education 1954, it was us that got bust, and including myself when I had to consolidate my high school. And my question was, is how do you purposely have your children integrate with people of color? Because they keep talking about the next generation, but the next generation is not being raised to make that type of change. Right, right. This, and the outside of me being the only person of color in maybe my cat, some of my cabinet's home, I haven't been to a lot of their homes. Most, they all been to mine, but I haven't been invited to their homes. And so I always wonder, I go, and how many other black folks have ever been inside your home? I even across the street, my neighbor, when I, to this day, I've been in this house, we're going in our sixth year in this house. And he and his wife invited me to church, but they've never invited me into their home. And I think it's very interesting to want to have me come pray with you, but I've never broke bread with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, from a very basic fundamental piece, that is the same thing with me and some of my cabinet members. I've never broke bread in your own home, you know? And, and, and you know what I mean? And so we, we play this facade, what we say is this reality. And the other thing too, is which I, I, I love to caution people on, you know, they're like, you know, we really need to do this, you know, for the black people. And I'm like, okay, well, let's flip that. You really need to be doing this because you have a responsibility. And we all have a responsibility to address this change. We're comfortable that the White House was built by Black folks. We're comfortable that our United States Capitol was built by Black folks. You know, we're comfortable only telling the story of Black folks as being descendants of slaves, but we don't talk about Benjamin Banneker. We don't talk about Phyllis Wheatley. That was the other thing I posed to my cabinet. I said, Can you name me a significant Black leader outside of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X? And I was trying to think of another common one. And everybody just kind of got quiet because there's the same piece of who we are, which is only in the unrest, but not Charles Drew who discovered black plasma or Benjamin Banneker who helped design DC. We, there's, there's no conversation about who we really are in our greatness. And I think that from a leadership standpoint, everybody has a responsibility to have a better understanding of who you're sitting in front of and quit being content with accepting that you only know the lesser part of them rather than knowing the greater part of them. And I think that's what we have to focus on. And it's, it's interesting because you've kind of alluded to it that yesterday in AACC's Community College Journal, you actually, um, your article was perfect timing that came out. And 
for the moderators on the call, if we can post that for everybody on the call so that they can take a look at this article because it was, it was extremely profound. So thank you for sharing your feelings on it. And it was very honest and true. And it's interesting because I liked, I, what I liked most about the article was that it was focused on the way you were feeling and the conversations you were having around the event and around the situation. And people struggle with processing their feelings with situations like this. And you've done a great job prior to the murder. You've done a great job of really bringing this truth to Hennepin Technical College. You know, I start with some of the work that you've done um, in partnership with Stop, Drop, and Enroll, but you've already done, you've already started making some great changes. So talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you've done in terms of equity and social justice within the Hennepin Technical College system. And then also, what are some of the things that you're doing to measure it, to make sure that it's successful? Well, we put together, we partner with another college to do research around our student, our student population. And what we found is is that 70% of the faculty respondents didn't think that our students were college ready, whereas 67% of our students thought that they were college ready. The interesting thing is is that Minnesota ranks number three in the country for public education. We also, percentage-wise, have the highest SAT scores. And the only other state in the union that has more college graduates by percent is Massachusetts. I want to say that again, because this is something that is very prevalent in the community college industry. We take these tests where we ask faculty, do we believe our students are ready? And then we ask these students if they're ready. And so colleges will call me and say, Tremika, we can't retain our students. And the fundamental question, and this comes out in SESI reports, that faculty ask, they ask faculty these questions and students get asked these questions. And there's clearly a dichotomy. You took action on it. But I just want to make sure that everyone on this and that's listening today, they hear and they know this is just not just at Hennepin Technical College. There's a right. major gap in the perception. And the difference is, is that, you know, Minnesota has such a profound and amazing education infrastructure. The fact that your faculty still think that has always boggled my mind. So, sorry, go ahead. Well, the, the other interesting thing is that so we're two campuses 30 miles apart from each other. So the graduation rates between our two campuses for high schools is 93% to 99% graduation rate. It's very hard for me to believe <laughs> that these students are not college ready, okay? They are ready. Yeah, we are not ready. Exactly. We're not ready. That's not what ready. it is. Right. We're, we're, and, and the same thing, just like we're talking about this social construct that we talk about for Black people, we do the same thing for students. We make them fit into some construct that is our world to navigate to be successful. Just like we do with Black folk, there's this broader construct that we have to exist in to navigate, to be successful. And the only way that you're really that much successful is who helps you, who comes in, and then what social capital do you have? Just like we do for students, social capital. Who do they, who do they know? Who are they connected to? And that's from whether you're a community college to some of our you know, well-known Harvards, to whatever. who did they know? How are they connected? 100%. Help them navigate that. Yep. That's what we put our students through all the time. Yep. And it's interesting because, you know, Belinda Miles just brought up a, a very, very good point. We need to be student-ready colleges. And being a student-ready college doesn't mean just reading the book. It means no. taking a minute. And Dr. Tondra Williams, she said something very interesting at one point. She said, for one minute at my school, we stopped figuring out how to blame our students as to why they couldn't succeed and take a look at ourselves to figure out what are we doing wrong. When she said that, it always rings true to me because what you're saying is you just didn't allow it. You were like, no, I'm not going to hear it. 
but the data has shown us that our students must be coming ready. There's something wrong with us. Our data also shows us that our men of color that literally meet the mean of our entire institution are struggling. So let's talk about that. If right. I'm understanding you correctly, right? Right. And in talking about it, and I have to admit, I'm a passionate person. So I can no, no, make no, people not. be like, oh, you know what I mean? You know. Um, and, and so what I learned was in some of these conversations, I had to diffuse myself and allow them to be facilitated. But I also learned was I did have to come out in front of it. I did have to let people know this is really important to me. Like This is a big deal to me. And when I did do that in the beginning, people were like, oh, my God, I think he's blaming us. And the interesting thing is, even when we talked about this concept of race, is that everybody is so, you know, they're so quick to want to declare their innocence around what is wrong. That's not what this is about. This is not about you declaring your innocence around what is wrong. What this is about is declaring your responsibility to change what we need to fix. And people don't get the difference between that. Um, Declaring your responsibility to change what needs to be fixed. fixed. Well said. Well said. Yeah. So at this point, and I remember because as you were sitting, you were on a meeting with your cabinet. Now I'm just going to. I want you to talk about a situation, so I'm going to make you talk about it real quick. And you don't get scared, I promise. It's good. So we're sitting in this cabinet meeting, and um, you were trying to get your SIM plan finished. And it was a PAC meeting, if I'm not mistaken. And what does PAC stand for? What does that stand for, Merle? Uh, So it's my president, advisory council. It's all the internal stakeholders. So I have my student leaders. I have the faculty chairs. I have the other labor union members there. And then there's other leads of departments and divisions. So you literally had, and um, you're a vice president of student affairs. Jess had already shared with them the stop, drop, and enroll data, which we will be sharing with all of our attendees as well. But what we did when you and I had our preliminary conversation before we started to complete your strategic enrollment plan, we said, okay, we're getting ready to break this down in a way where we're addressing the fact that these African-American and men of color are not succeeding. And we are going to make people own it that are sitting on this and sitting in this PAC committee. So the fact that you just made that statement, I want you to talk a little bit about how you drove that home. You didn't let people walk away thinking it was it was enrollment's responsibility to grow that enrollment. It was the entire institution's responsibility to fix this problem with our black men failing. Right. Well, the first thing is driving it home was that people wanted to talk about one year retention. Well, we look at three year averages. And so there's no excuse when you're talking about a two-year institution. If we're looking at a three-year average of that retention, clearly those are not the same students, particularly when you lost half of them last year. The other thing is, is that they all exist in a lot of other spaces outside of enrollment. They're sitting in a classroom most of the time. They're sitting in some type of program. And so what's happening when, when you didn't see Tramika come back? Yeah. What did you do? What action did you take? Because that is a problem that Trimika didn't come back. (laughs) You know, and that was the piece where people were kind of like, okay, are you blaming me? No, 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 no. What action did you take? So there's a, even today, there's going to be more of a cultural change to get away from, oh my God, this is my, you know, he's making me feel like this is my fault to, I really have to do something. What are the things I need to do and make sure that I do them? Because it's the right thing to do. And it's because we care. We need to demonstrate that. It's interesting you say that. So we were talking earlier and Kevin Boyce um, brought up a statement and um, I believe it was uh, surrounding the conversation when you had your staff uh, read White Fragility and he talked about, and it's directly related to what you just said, 
he was talking about like in the chapter four, chapter five area where she said, you know, the question is not whether or not I'm a racist. The question is whether or not I need to figure out what I have done to interrupt racism. And obviously I, we're, we're paraphrasing here, but I think that Kevin has a really good point because it's, that's exactly what you're saying. You're saying the question is whether or not you did something bad. It's why did Tremika fail? What right. did you do to be right. complicit in that? Right. And the other thing which, which we make our students do, just as well as we make other Black folks do, is that we make them acculturate. We try to make them acculturate to us rather than we are finding our ways to figure out how to be successful with them. It's yes. the same thing that happens to Black folks in their trajectory to success all 100%, the time. 100%. In a new environment, you have to figure out how to acculturate. You have to figure out how to not offend anybody. And you have to figure out how they communicate without being offensive so that you can still be successful. Yep. I'll be honest yep. with you, I'm not the best at all those. And I did, you know, I'm not, you know, and I've, I've always rawly, authentically been myself. And, and I've always tell people, there's going to be a lot of people who love that. There's going to be a lot of people who do not. But what you have to be is comfortable that that's a fact. Yeah. And most people are not. And if you're spending most of your time trying to not be authentically who you are, you will never figure out who is in front of you authentically as well. You know, so that facade is that we replay that in our institutions all day, every day. I have to ask you this question. This is a question that I ask at the end of each and every podcast episode that I have. If you were in a room with all of your fellow presidents and you had to give one piece of advice to them regarding social justice and equity, what would that piece of advice be in terms of how they impact their institution? Well, I think that the first thing is, is that we keep talking about today about having a responsibility. People know that I stick out like a sore thumb by just being who I am. I jokingly call myself the Mary J. Blige of higher ed. I'm going to walk in the room. I'm going to sing off tune. There's going to be a lot of people that like it, a whole bunch of people who don't. I'm going to probably have a wig on that's got my natural hair coming out the back. And that's who I am. I feel like somehow in in our leadership trajectory, we have played into a facade of who leaders really are supposed to be. And I think that's a bunch of crap. I think that if we were really about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we would be teaching people to find who they are much earlier on because that's where their success is. And people bumble throughout most of their career not figuring out who they are and what they bring to the table, which is completely different. They focus so much on what they don't have. Have you ever heard of somebody say, take a look at my CV, what am I missing? Rather than take a look at my CV, what should I emphasize? And I think that if we spend more time with our black and brown folks that can learn how to emphasize themselves with pride and understanding that just being that alone has its own dignity and you don't compromise that, I think we'll be moving more in a world of difference. And we got a lot of work to do around. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining on this podcast. It's been a pleasure. And you know I love you, Merle. And as always, it's just like sitting at your house having a glass of wine and having this conversation. So thank you so much. So that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's bonus content. You can find more episodes at www.deepdivestv.com or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast subscription service. Oh, and don't forget, follow Deep Dives TV on Instagram and Facebook to stay in the loops on all things Deep Dive. So until next time, thanks for listening.